Well, thanks a lot for being here this evening. Uh, my name is Kevin Conover. You're listening to Educate for Life Radio. We're broadcasting down here in Southern California on KPRZ 1210 AM. Um, that's a local radio station. And then, of course, we're broadcast all over social media. And uh, we've had some fantastic shows recently. Had Andrew Pudawa on the show last week, and he is a, a fantastic guy. Really loved uh, talking to him about the importance of English and I, I kept quoting Jordan Peterson last week <laughs> uh, because he was talking about how critical critical thinking is specifically developed through writing. Um, and and I, I just thought that whole show was incredible, um, really great stuff. And then next week, um, we are going to be uh, interviewing an expert in microscopy. And um, he is one of the uh, gentlemen who found the largest tyron I'm sorry, largest triceratops horn ever found, which had a non-fossilized bone, uh, if you can believe it. That is going to be uh, really great. And this week, uh, we have the privilege of having a gentleman, Rajiv, on the program with us this evening. Rajiv Samaru, he's the technical subject matter expert in the oil and gas industry. He holds a, BA, a Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering, a Master's of Science degree in Petroleum Engineering, and an MBA. Um, he also serves in the church, uh, on church leadership um, in Katy, Texas. And um, he's also involved with um, a Down syndrome organization, Yara Star Foundation. That's yarastarfoundation.org, um, which um, he'll tell us a little bit more about that also. And uh, uh, Rajiv, I just want to say thanks a lot for being on the program this evening. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And now um, we met at a homeschool convention. Um, right. you are, um, you're a homeschool parent, is that right? Brand new homeschool parent. Brand, when you when you met parent. us, we were just getting our feet just a little bit wet, you know, trying to understand what this whole homeschooling thing was about. And yeah, so we've started now. It's been about a week and a half, and yeah, still yeah. being tired. Of <laughs> you're not tired. You're not. You haven't quit yet. <laughs> we we haven't given up yet. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I know it's it, it can be a struggle at times, um, but the homeschool movement is growing. It's incredible um, the growth. Um, I believe I was just looking at the stats on it, and in I believe it's just the past two years it's grown by over a million. We're over three million homeschool kids in the U.S. now, um, and for obvious reason I think. But but uh, you know uh, you blew me away when I started talking to you um, at the homeschool convention, and you started talking about how you lived in Saudi Arabia. And um, I have always been so interested uh, from, from probably 20 or more years ago, um, you know, apologetics, uh, for those of you listening or have been listening to my program, I'm an apologetics teacher. It's, it's a defense of the Christian faith. And specifically, what are the evidences that tell us that the Bible is actually true? And I'm always enthusiastic anytime I, I find something new. And about quite a while ago, maybe uh, 12 years ago, I stumbled on a DVD back when DVDs were around. Um, they've quickly uh, diminished, but I stumbled on a DVD called The Search for the Real Mount Sinai. And when I, I watched this movie, I was just absolutely blown away. Um, uh, one of the main fellows in that uh, movie is Bob Cornuck, mm -hmm. who goes and actually, it, it, I found this out also, is following up from a guy named Ron Wyatt, who... Um, his his fall his name has fallen into disrepute among some because they say he's not a very um, uh, credible source, uh, which is interesting. But um, he did talk about this stuff, and Bob ended up picking picking it up and did his own research. And you know, uh, Rajiv, if you've ever been like me, you hear something and you're like wait a second, this sounds too good to be true, you know, and you're kind of like, who do I know who's actually been there that I can talk to? And honestly, you are the, ver the first person I've ever talked to who actually can say, I was there, I saw it, <laughs> you know, I went back, I, ch I checked this all out. And that's what made me so excited to talk to you. Um, but um, so for those of you listening, if you don't know what the search for the real Mount Sinai is, um, they actually believe they've found the real Mount Sinai, the place where God met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. Um, they've also found what are called the caves of Moses. They've found um, the split rock at Horeb. This is where all the water came out and gave water to what, what looks like around two million Israelites. And um, so, so when I started talking to you, Rajiv, I was like, whoa, this is incredible. Okay, this is somebody who's, this, this is worth, you know, 
uh, sharing with more people because it's not just Bob or Ron saying this happened. You you actually testify that hey, I was there. But before yeah. you tell us all about that, and and um, you know, uh, Rajiv's got a, some pictures that he's going to share with us, and it's going to be pretty cool. But before you we get into that, can you tell us how you ended up in Saudi Arabia and and where you came from? Because that's also a pretty cool story too. Um, it, well, it's unusual to to hear your story. So well, well, I mean, working in the oil and gas industry as an expat, I mean, I work for a company that basically moves us around to wherever you're required, wherever your expertise is required. So, so I started off in Trinidad and Tobago, which is my home country. Um, spent some years there. Then now, we... tell tell people about that. Most people don't know about Trinidad <laughs> and Tobago. <laughs> okay, so Trinidad and Tobago, two small islands, one country, the very last country in the Caribbean archipelago towards the south. So we're right next to Venezuela. Okay, you know, we we see Venezuela. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Now, are you have you had the same uh, struggles in uh, Trinidad as they've had in Venezuela of of late? No, we have not. No. Okay. Yeah, so, it's completely night and day. Okay, okay. Yeah. And, so then uh, after Trinidad, moved to Brazil where we lived for four years. And then after moving out of Brazil, we went to Saudi Arabia where we spent six years. And it's, you know, during a Christmas vacation back in 2017 when, you know, all of our friends were going to Europe and going back to the States and so on for, for Christmas holiday, I decided, well, let's go to the northwest of Saudi. And people looked at me like, what yeah <laughs> even, even saudis looked at me like what <laughs> so that's a question actually that i have that's really interesting along those same lines is i mean do people are people generally aware that this this is out there among you know the people in saudi um is this like a common place that people visit or is this just obscure so so, so where these sites are, there are things around it that people would visit. So if you do a search, you will find like Al-Ula, which is a kind of uh, Nabataean era, you know, ruin like from, from Petra in Jordan, you know, very similar to that. Okay. Um, and, and over the last two or three years, Saudi has really done a great job to fix it up and make it like a major tourist type site, you know. Um, when we went in 2017, it was not like that. It was just... Um, just open desert and you can just go wherever you want. No signs, no nothing. Everything is just <laughs> untouched, which made it, you know, an adventure, so to speak. Now, when you say you can go wherever you want, I mean, I mean, this is, uh, you, you know, you can also get lost, right? I mean, is it pretty, <laughs> is it easy to get lost out there or is it? It is pretty... definitely easy to get lost. I mean, once you go out into the desert, you don't have any cell phone signal. So if you have a GPS, then you're able to, hmm. to, to map out where you're going. I mean, I didn't have a GPS. I just used my phone and downloaded the maps on Google and just went out looking at the map and looking at that little dot move and saying, all right, we're getting closer to the point, you know, but did but you go now? It, did you know? go the first time you went out there? Did you go by yourself? No. So it was me, my wife and my two daughters. And I said, there's no way I'm going to drive 20 miles out into the desert sand, you know, but then I had a friend who called up and said he was coming to visit that area as well because he knew we were there. And I told him, I said, all right, dude, you know, go ahead and get a car, the same as my own, and let's go out there. And we did together. And one of the pictures you'll see when I start showing, you'll see these two little cars, but they're not little cars. They're actually like uh, like Chevrolet Suburbans yeah. parked out in the desert with just the expanse. It's just incredible. Yeah. So when you're going out there, is there any danger of, you know, for example, running out of uh, fuel or running out of water? Is that something you really have to be cautious about when you're going out there? Mm, you do have to be cautious, of course, and even tires, right? Because there are rocks that you will be going over with the vehicles. But I mean, once you have enough water, I mean, we, we kept bottles of water in the car. We always made sure that the vehicle was filled up. You know, every gas station we pass, even if we only use quarter time, we filled it up just because we didn't know where there was going to be another gas station. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, it was only 20 miles, maybe so 30 not too miles bad. Okay. maximum. Yeah. So it's not too bad. I mean, it's oh, interesting. Still, still just a marathon distance back. <laughs> and how and how hot is it? Okay, so it depends. If you go now, it's going to be 50 degrees Celsius. So that's what 120 Celsius, 120 oh, wow. degrees Fahrenheit. Jeez. If you go in December, when we went there, it was 
you know, uh, I would say 50s in, in Fahrenheit kind of mm. thing. So pleasantly cool. In fact, I, I was actually wearing a puffy jacket on one of the trips. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, um, you know, also, um, you said it's changed a lot since your first trip there. You said, I think you said 2017 was your first trip? 2017, December was my first trip, yes. Okay. And then, so since then, you know, um, kind of like, you know, when you go look, you know, at at uh, different archaeological places, like maybe the pyramids or things like this, they've become very, very big tourist destinations. Yeah. Is that what this is becoming or is it still, there's still not a lot of visitors there? I do not believe that it is becoming quite as open just yet. You know, one of the things is these are Christian sites mm. in a predominantly Islamic nation. Yeah. So it's not going to be promoted as much as something that is Islamic. So that's one of the things. One of the sites in particular, like you mentioned earlier when you opened up uh, Moses's caves or, or, or Jethro's caves, it, yeah. it's in fact labeled as a tourist site, Jethro's caves by Saudi Arabia. It, there is even a welcome visitor center. It's not called Jethro, it's called Shuaib. Shuaib is who they refer to as Jethro in the Quran. Mm. And um, so... So, um, yeah, well, let's, uh, let's check out these photos and everything that you, that you've, uh, taken when you were out there. Sure, and, sure. um, you know, when I, if you watch the search for the real Mount Sinai, they, they, the video is pretty funny in parts because they actually say like they were having trouble even getting into Saudi Arabia because mm -hmm. they had to, um, they had to put a reason why they were coming in. I don't know if that is just because they were American or if it was, there was some other reason why. Um, but do you have difficulty getting access to, uh, to this or is it, or is it easier for you because you were a, um, you know, you were somebody staying in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, for us, we were living there. So we just went, we just took a domestic flight and went, but today as Americans, you can get a tourist visa very, very easily to visit Saudi Arabia. And is that, you know, a lot of people, when, when, when you, when you think of an Islamic country, um, I used to have a, a Muslim exchange student who was uh, living at my house and he told me there are certain places he won't even go as a Muslim. He wasn't talking about Saudi Arabia, but he I think he was talking specifically about Iran. Mm -hmm. um, but is, is tourism relatively safe? Would you say for an American there, or is that something they have to be concerned about? Or is, does it, does it just depend on what's ha happening in the, um, you know, uh, socio-political uh, realm? What's Yeah, I think that is sort of segmented just to the socio-political realm. You know, as, as tourists there, and we were with many Americans, we were with, you know, people of other nationalities whenever we did this, these trips, and we never felt really threatened per se. I mean, we did have some Bedouins come up to us out in the desert and ask us what we were doing there, and they were kind of rough about it, but not to the point of being threatened. You know, yeah, because Bob Bob Cornock in his video, he, he actually says, OK, first of all, we had to fake our visas to get in. <laughs> Second of all, when we got there, there were fences up with armed guards. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he, if he was trying to make it more dramatic than it was or if this was really the case, because he's like we had to sneak in the fence. We had to climb up the mountain at night all this stuff. And so what, what yeah. is your take on that? The fences are still there. The signs are all still there. Um, but there are no armed security guards anymore. They have far more pressing things to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you a story when, when one of the pictures come up, but, you know, for example, the, the, the golden calf altar is completely surrounded by a fence with a gate with a chain on it and a padlock. Mm -hmm. Mount Sinai or the mountain that I'll show you has a fence completely around it. You know, this oh, wow. is a country that has fenced a mountain. Can you imagine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they fenced the mountain and put up a yeah. sign telling you, do not go beyond the sign. But I mean, I'll, I'll admit when, when I approached that, that time, the first time we went, I, I, I told my friend, I said, man, there's a fence around here. And he goes, well, there's no fence there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess they're okay with you walking in over here. It's just not here. You can walk. In. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the fence just broke down, you know, and we just, yeah. we just walked across, but I mean, they fenced, everything is so well preserved out there. That, you know, in some cases we had to use a drone to get over to see really what's behind this fence. Wow. Because you're just cool. driving in a desert and you see this huge chain link fence. Yeah. With padlocks. 
and an antiquity sign. And I have a picture of what the signs look like. So you'll that see that. That is so cool. So um, if you're just tuning in, my guest today is Raj Rajiv Samaru. And um, we just happened to connect at a homeschool convention. And um, so he, he's been in, he lived in Saudi Arabia. He's been to the, the spot where um, some people have now decided uh, Mount Sinai is actually in a different place than the original location that people thought it was. And they think they've found the real thing. So what are we looking at here, Rajiv? So believe it or not, this is actually one of my favorite pictures from Saudi Arabia. It's beautiful. You know, I just I just took picture. this on the side of the road driving. We just pulled over to the side, took this picture. And it's like, I showed this to people and they're like, is this the Grand Canyon? It's like, nope. <laughs> I showed this to Saudis and they're like, Utah Where could is be this? like Utah or something. You know, yeah. exactly. Utah or yeah. something. And, and yeah. when I told them, I said, this is Northwest Saudi Arabia. And they go, my Saudi Arabia? I say, obviously not. It's my Saudi Arabia because you <laughs> haven't been there, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But yeah, so um, I mean, the the landscape is incredible, it is. right? And it's not something that is promoted a lot. And I, I tell people that if you have the opportunity to go and spend a week just traveling this area, it is apart from the sites that we're going to talk about. It is absolutely incredible, and the people very, you know, open and welcoming. I mean, once they realize that you're a foreigner, they want to. They don't see those. They don't see foreigners in this area. They want to mm. welcome you. They, they want to invite you to their home and, and everything. The hospitality is amazing. That's wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah, let me start uh, taking us through, right? Yeah. So um, when you look at a map and you, you do any sort of research on where Mount Sinai might be, of course, you'll come up with the traditional two possible sites in Egypt, right? So the one that I visited was the one that's located in Saudi Arabia. And, and this area here of Saudi is actually called Midian, right? In the Bible, it speaks of the mountain of God being in Midian. So that's the first clue, <laughs> right? Driving through this area, you're going to see like the Midian gas processing plant by Saudi Aramco. You're going to see things that are labeled Midian. So, that, you know, it's, all, it's that, that's what it's called. So Midian, as in uh, Midianites. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So so that's very interesting because... Um, the one down there at the very bottom, um, yeah, yeah, that's the one that they talk about in the search for real Mount Sinai, and they say there's no reason to believe this is actually the place. Yeah, um, and they talk about they talk about the Red Sea crossing. Um, mm-hmm. That <clears throat> uh, anyway, we're not going to get into too many of those details because that's a lot to cover. But mm-hmm. um, did you get a chance to look at the place where uh, in the search for the real Mount Sinai they claim that this is where they believe? the Israelites, uh, where Moses parted the, the sea and the Israelites mm-hmm. walked across. Yeah. They said there's actually a land bridge that comes up. Yeah. Did you get to see I, that I, at all? Yeah, I will I will show you what those areas look like. That, for me, there are two potential locations, and I will show you exactly those two that I think are possible and why okay. I think they're possible, right? Right, yeah. So so this is the mountain here, right? And I call this the Mount, the, the Mount Sinai of Saudi Arabia. And, and maybe perhaps it is the real Mount Sinai. But what I like to do first is I want to show you the mountain. This is what it looks like. Mm. And then I'll support it with the scripture. So you'll see the scripture on the top. But in order, you know, like you mentioned, you, you want to look for things that, that justify the, the reality of the Bible, the truth of the Bible. Yeah. So we want to look for evidence around the mountain. Yeah, so what? It can be any mountain. But what are the things that happened around this mountain? And we know that many things happened around this mountain. So first of all, you look at this mountain, and we see here in Exodus 19.18, it says that it was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. Hmm. I mean, when I spoke to our, our church here in Texas about this, you know, all the barbecue professionals, I'm like, yeah, you put any smoke on anything, fire on anything, it's going to get burnt, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, you have the, the top of a mountain that is darker than color. Okay, maybe we can have a geological explanation for this. I didn't test anything. I didn't test the rocks or anything to, to, to understand this. But just going purely from a, from a visual sense, this is yeah. an odd mountain that has the top of it, the top one third of it that's blackened. Fair so there enough. are no other mountains in the area that have a similar feature. It it continues across a small ridge, but that's it, mm. right? Um, so let's look at some of the other things that happened around this mountain. Yeah. So the first thing is when they finally arrive, when the the Israelites finally arrive at the mountain. 
right? Moses, God called Moses up to the mountain and then gave him some instructions. He came back down and he told them, look, I'm going to go back up to this mountain, but, you know, you all cannot come, right? So here's where he put here. God told him, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Just on the foot of this mountain, we find this petroglyph with men carved with arrows on it. I mean, I can't make out quite what these are doing here, but that is a bow and arrow. That is a bow and arrow. That is definitely a bow and arrow. On the foot of this mountain, right? I I saw one site. My friend told me two sites. That's not even in um, the search for the real Mount Sinai. They They don't mention that. So that's... That's no. something. Um, have you ever heard anybody else reference that, or is that something that you? No, really... I, I haven't heard anyone reference this, but it, it's it's somewhere because I mean we were walking around the mountain and happened to stumble upon these things. Wow! But I mean, crazy. here it is. I mean, this is you know a very hard piece of evidence. Yeah. So so what else happened around the mountain? Right. We know that God told when when. Uh, on the western side of the mountain, just you know, just before you start to ascend the mountain, when you look on Google Maps, you see these two lanes right here. Mm. Okay, you can see that there. So if we zoom in to, or if we take a picture of it, so I'm standing now on the foot of the mountain and looking down at this mm. kind of arrow-shaped thing. And then if we if we look at this point here, I'm standing on a rock looking at these two lanes. You can see the lanes here, right? This is at the very foot of the mountain. So again, behind the fence, which we walked across. God told Moses in Exodus 2024, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. So we see two two rows. One is a little bit larger than the other. So you could imagine sheep and goats in one, cattle in the other. And then... Over here, it says, if you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dress stones, for you will defile it. Now, one could argue that some of these stones look flat on one side. But then if you look on the backside here on this fence, on this wall behind you, those stones are all flat faced. Mm-hmm. right? And all the stones that are rubbled down in that little ditch are all flat faced as well. Mm-hmm. And then it says here, do not go up to the altar on steps or your private parts may be exposed. Mm-hmm. This altar, you notice I'm looking down at it Yeah. On, in this picture. And all around here, you look down at it. So it's, mm. it's at the foot of the mountain, just before you start to ascend. You're looking down at it, and it's made of lanes, supposedly for animals. And, you know, it's, again, you're, it's not high up where you have to look up at it. And what's interesting about this is that there's not any other archaeological like remains in this area. It's not as if nope. there was some sort of a civilization that actually lived here nope. um, and built buildings or did anything else. No, nope. but let me show you something that's even more interesting here now. When Moses actually got up the next morning and built the altar, Moses wrote down everything that the Lord said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Egypt. You see those lanes right here? Yeah. Look at these these cuts, these rock cuts right here, you know, pieces of pillars just strewn out in the desert at the foot of the mountain next to this. Wow. That's unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, there's gotta be an explanation there and that seems like pretty straightforward. It's incredible though. I mean, because that, what happened there with Moses, that's literally about 3,500 years ago that this took place. Yep. And yet it's still there as a testament to what happened. Yep. So, I mean, and this is the only white rock. So wherever this right, wherever they brought this white rock from, they brought it specifically for doing, or they, they got special rock brought out, you know, just for this, because it's only the white rock that are shaped in this cylindrical form. Mm. Right? Wow. That's amazing. Yep. Um, now, has anybody ever said something to you like, well, there has anybody come up with some sort of an excuse why this wouldn't be um, the evidence from uh, what the Bible is talking about? You know, after, after people see these, these pieces of evidence, the arrows, now they see this, and then they see some of the other things that I'll show you. 
they, they become convinced. So yeah. I always start <laughs> off saying that, hey, look, I'm not going to tell you that this is the mountain. Let me just show you some things. And then you decide after that. I had, a, I had one of the first talks I did to a small group. And there was this one guy flipping through the Bible as I was talking, just flipping through, flipping through, looking, flipping through. And at the end, he just looked at me and said, I am 100% convinced. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's really compelling. It's like, wow, okay, this this happened. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Now, now the biggest story that most of us remember is what happened at the Golden Calf Altar, right? Yeah. Where God gave Moses the commandments as as, as well as all these other laws. And Moses is coming down now from the mountain. And then there's this big, festival or celebration ongoing right yeah um so so here we see in exodus 32 he said you know he took what they handed him and this is the gold right because the israelites asked the egyptians for gold when they were leaving israel yeah. um, leaving egypt sorry handed made it into an idol cast it into the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool then he said these are your gods now that was one of the things that kind of struck me these are your gods because when you look around this big pile of rock which you see is properly fenced yeah yeah and you see the mountain in the background yeah so you can tell from a proximity point of view we're not far away that's incredible these are amazing photos you've taken moses could have been walking right down here and then he saw what's going on right down here yeah yeah yeah. And I mean, when I climbed up here, many times I turned around and looked back to see if I can see this and you can. Wow. Right. <laughs> so imagine it lit in the night with fire. Oh, and, you, and you then Moses see. is outraged. He's like <laughs> freaking out. Like, oh, my God. Exactly. <laughs> the frustration that Moses felt like you can just right. hear it out of the pages of the Bible. You know, so, so he had two examples of what that, yeah. th- those calves or the cattle you know, carvings look like, and they're carved all around this, this uh, big uh, pile of rock, mm. which is, you know, you, you see it all there. So even, you know, I speculated that maybe this is where they actually placed the golden calf. And then they had mm. those other carvings there, or they placed it on top there and they had the carvings around. But the thing is, is all the text says these, right? It's, it's not singular. It's actually plural, right? These are your gods. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So this is what the sign in front of that pile of rock looks like. So everywhere we went, we saw signs like these on the fences, just telling you you're not to trespass. Mm. So I didn't dare go through this one. You see it's fenced with chain link, barbed wire. There's a gate with, you know, a padlock on it kind of thing. Um, that's, an, that's something else that, you know, um, as, as more, and pe- more people uh, have the opportunity to see this, it, it's, you're afraid of, you know, uh, vandals, people who who either steal uh, some of these evidences or they damage it or whatever, you know, um, yeah. has that been an issue at all as far as you know? I haven't seen any sort of graffiti marks um, in the area. Actually, the last time I went to Split Rock, I saw some graffiti. Someone wrote their name across a rock that was just away from it, you know, but um, I don't think in this area... No, because very close to where this is located, there's a small village out in the mm-hmm. desert. So I think because of that, those people kind of look on what's going on here. Yeah, like they were checking on you too. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, you know, just overlooking this this area here, we found this rock where you can see, um, you know, some other carvings of, of uh, cattle and so on. So, it, you know, just speculating it could have been people just looking down and carving what they saw kind of thing, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so Moses came down from the mountain, right? He saw what was going on. He broke the tablets. He then took the calf. He ground it into powder. He scattered it in the water and then he made the people drink it. And then what did he do? Right. He called on them and he said, who is for the Lord and who came to him? The Levites came to him. Mm. Right. And he told the Levites that day, you know, go out. And basically he commanded them that day to go out and kill your brother, you know, whoever was not for the Lord. Mm. And here we see in Exodus 32, 28, the Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day about 3000 people died. Wow. About one and a half miles from this golden calf location. So all of this would have happened at golden calf about one and a half miles away from it, heading north, there's a a huge fenced off area and we couldn't figure out what was behind it. 
So when we had the opportunity to use a drone to get in there, we saw these things, what look like tombstones. You know, you can see the, the, the markings and you can see many of them standing side by side like this. You know, mm-hmm. th- this is not a natural formation where you have rocks piled behind it and rocks in a line on the side. So we saw these graveyards. We saw this graveyard and we thought, well, you know, maybe this is where they brought all these people and had them buried here because you won't want to keep 3,000 dead bodies close to your camp. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's only a mile and a half. You know, that's you know that's nothing for them. They've been walking for all this time. Anyway, they've already been walking for almost three months by this time. Yep. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so another this, thing that's not mentioned in the, in the, uh, the search for the real Mount Sinai. You, you wouldn't believe we were just driving in the desert and you saw the fence and then you said, oh, a fence, that must be something important. Let's go and check it out. And we, we well, were just walking and, around the fence and looking and couldn't see. It. So what's interesting here is that um, somebody uh, within the Saudi government or somewhere, somebody knows their Bible, right? Somebody knows. <laughs> and of course, Muslims Muslims believe in, in uh, Moses. I mean, he's one of their prophets. Yep. And so, um, you know, they have they have reverence for these events also. Um, and so there, there, somebody has been out here and looked at all this stuff and come to the conclusion that, Hey, this is, this is where it happened, uh, which is really interesting. Um, have you ever heard anything from the Saudi government as far as like, you know, has there ever been any kind of official proclamation, um, about, cause you know, when we go and we explore places like the grand Canyon, or you go, you know, all the different sites throughout America, the national parks, there are signs always posted explaining, Hey, th- here's what this is. This is what happened. Mm-hmm. Is there anything, uh, but they designate it as antiquities, but is there any kind of description about what these things are? There, there are no descriptions as far as I am aware. Um, I know that the Saudi government is promoting the area for tourism, but I don't believe they're using these sites as the tur- as the marketing pictures, right? They're using mm-hmm. the other sites as such as Alula, and then they're billing the, you know, what is supposedly the most modern city on the planet, Niom, uh, mm-hmm. up in that area as well. Oh, they so, are they're, that that the I've heard lots of talk about this, the giant city with that's like a wall, that's like a. Big, the well, well, that is miles. one, but but there is another one that they started building many years ago called Neom, which is supposed to be like some kind of fancy resort. It's it's supposed to be ten times better than Dubai. Basically, it's what oh, they're wow. trying to do, right? And what is Alula? Alula, it's Al-Ula. Uh, it's a Nabataean site, Nabataean era site that is in the Tabuk province, which is this northwestern province. Um, that basically. Like the way Petra is is really marketed as a tourist site. Yeah. Al-Ula has not traditionally been marketed as a tourist site. It's it's has the same sort of architecture as as Petra, just oh. it was just sitting out in the desert with a little gravel road leading to it, and that was it. But now they're actually starting to to put the infrastructure in place to attract tourists to come there. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So so until this time, I, I kind of looked at some of the pieces of evidence that surrounds the mountain moving forward chronologically. You know, they arrive to the mountain and then these things happen. But there's some things that happened leading up to the mountain. So one of those things, of course, was where they crossed, you know, when they crossed the Red Sea. Now, when they crossed the Red Sea, one of the things that they they, they encountered was Elim, which is you have Mara and you have Elim. So you have the bitter waters of Mara and then you have Elim. I personally have not tasted any of the waters on any of the flowing streams, so I cannot tell you whether they were bitter or not. But I can tell you that leading directly from the coast, so where this picture on the left was taken, I'm standing on the shore of the Red Sea with Egypt behind me, and there's this rock formation. Now, here's a dumpster, and here's a full-size pickup truck for your reference to give you the size of the scale of this, this, uh, this, this gorge going in here. In speaking with the locals, they will tell you that when Musa or Moses crossed the Red Sea, not only did the Red Sea split, but the rock split for the people to enter. Oh, This is what the locals will tell you. Interesting. Huh? And they refer to this. They actually call this place in their local language, the, the eye of Moses. Right? It, yeah. So, 
That's so, pretty I mean, amazing. That, so these people and these people have passed down an oral history. Is that what it is? Ex- exactly. This is typically how they pass down their stuff. The Bedouin culture is you, yeah. you by storytelling. So there. So I mean, that story has to originate from somewhere. So I mean, yeah. it just seems very intuitive that uh, this is obviously where this all happened. Because right. why would these people be talking about it like this if if it hadn't? <laughs> So they call this place the Eye of Moses. As I say, this is on the shore of the Red Sea. So I'm standing on the shore, just looking into it. When you drive into this gorge or go into this gorge, you see, you know, areas that look like this with lots of palms. You see some areas that get narrow where, you know, you actually need to get people come out the car and help direct you how you can navigate through the rocks and so on. But then you get to a huge opening where there are lots of palms. But not only are there lots of palms, but there are wells. So of course, these wells have been now concreted, but there are wells. I personally counted nine wells, right? Just looking wow. through, but you know, maybe some have not been discovered or just covered up and or I couldn't find them. But around that area, you would also find like these um like mounds of uh of rock used maybe as some kind of collection site for something, right? Huh. So yeah. so here. Here is that site I was telling you about where you saw that gorge. And this is that gorge going in. It goes in about three miles until you reach that. And it's just a direct road. You know, there are no, no exits. It's just one road all the way to this. So just it's imagine. The only, the it's the only way you could go. <laughs> yeah. The Israelites came here. They got here. And then it was like, oh, well, I guess we need to go here. And just, just had to walk. And then they came here. So somewhere in here might be the bitter waters of Mara right? Like I was showing on this previous one. Well, maybe you don't see it. Here. Well, yeah, you can see like some wet streams right here. So yeah. you found little streams all over while you were driving in, but, um, or hiking in, but yeah, I mean, I didn't taste these waters or anything. Who, who put the concrete in there with the rebar? It, it could, it could have been, um, you know, like Bedouins who were living out there for some time, they found the springs and they decided to just you know, make it more official. But I mean, there's no no other infrastructure out there right now. So in fact, you would not see any houses in there. You would not see, you know, any remnants of anything, just this concrete rebar. Yeah. Right. Huh, that's amazing. Right. Now, again, the other big thing, after they left this place, right, they went out into the desert of Sin, which is where they actually came upon the split rock. So, wow. so, so this is me standing to give you the, the, the idea of the size of that split. Um, you know, it's probably a 30, 35 foot high rock. Okay. Um, here is a picture of it looking from a distance away. And you can see how significant that is. So here, here are two people just walking right there. But, you know, it's something you cannot miss. Yeah. The, the first time we were driving, looking for this thing, my wife was like, you know, how are we going to find this? I mean, where, 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 where is this rock? I mean, look at how many rocks there are here. Yeah. And as we drove in front of this one, she goes, oh, that rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, this, here, here is the a split rock at Horeb, which the Bible references and yeah. where, where the Israelites got all the water they needed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so, I mean, this one is about 25 miles from the oasis of Elim. Elim. So, really you can see that these are all walkable distances, right? Over a day or two, you can more than walk this, right? So if you stood at the split rock and you looked out now into the other direction, looked out towards the uh, east, this is what you see. So this is that picture I was telling you about with the two cars just out in the middle of the desert and, you know, there's just nothing around. Beautiful. That's a real desert right there. That's a real desert. That is a proper (laughs) desert, Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting here is you look at this big expanse and you imagine that here would have been filled with Israelites. Mm-hmm. And then you continue looking towards this direction and you see this kind of little hill right here. Yeah. And I don't know if you can see clearly, but there's like a black line on top of that hill. I see it. Yeah. 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 That line actually shows up like this on, 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 on your, your maps, on your Google Maps. Right. So you can see you have that huge expanse. You have that huge expanse down here as well. And we know here that that is where the battle of the Amalekites happened. Mm. Right? Where Moses, when he raised his hands up, that's when they were winning. And when he had his hands down, they were not. Yeah. So you can imagine that maybe the, wherever the Amalekites attacked from, Moses went up on a hill. I don't know if it could have been this hill or this hill, but 
let me show you a close-up of what that hill looks like now. This is that hill, and that is that black seam of rock that you see mm. right there. Yeah? Yeah. So, you, we, you know, I was just standing here and just picturing, like, okay, you have the Levites coming from this way, you have the Amalekites coming from this way, and, you know, maybe this is where he stood. It could be. Yeah. But what's, what's more interesting about this pile of rock right here, as we started to kind of walk around those rocks, you saw footprints carved into those rocks. Right. Oh, interesting. Right. And we we seen Deuteronomy 11, every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean Sea. And what better way to put your footprints than carving it on a rock than stamping it in the desert sun, right? <laughs> they weren't going to take, they weren't going to take any chances. Hey God, <laughs> that was our footprint right there. It, they, it, they took it, him at his word. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so throughout that pile of rock, you see these footprints. Now this is the only place that I've seen these footprints. Yeah. There are footprints elsewhere, but this was the only place where they were so visible, right? Right <laughs> yeah. here in front of the rock in Rephidim. Wow. Yeah. That's, that is so cool, <laughs> man. You're going to have to make your own movie, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so now, you know, we, we see in the text as well, we know that Jethro, Moses's father-in-law lived fairly close by because Jethro sent word to Moses that he was going to come out and meet him. He sent word to Moses when Moses was at Rephidim and then Jethro went out somewhere next to the mountain. So we know Rephidim and the mountain are close by because Jethro went to meet Moses close to the base of the mountain. This, these are the sites that I told you about that Saudi Arabia has labeled as the dwellings of Jethro, right? Of course, I, I, like I told you, they call him Shwaib, right? They're Nabataean era. So you can see the steps just like you would see in Petra in Jordan, mm. right? And yeah. there, there are many of them on the hillside. When you look at the hillside, there are many of them. Right. So th th there's a this place is fenced off. There's a visitor center. You can drive in. You can walk into the caves. But the view from the cave when you turn the other direction is the mountain. Wow. The view is the mountain. So, you know, it's not far away. It's not. This is now the backside of the mountain. The previous view you saw of the mountain was the front side. Wow. So. Right? So wait, so this, what do you mean? When you say this is the backside of the mountain, are you talking to the backside of Mount Sinai? Yes. So the view I showed you with the golden calf. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Okay. Yeah. That is looking at the mountain from the east. Okay. Right. And yeah. this view is looking at the mountain from the west. Huh. So the Western side of the mountain. So, so this is really interesting. Um, so is the belief that when Moses left Egypt, when he fled Egypt, that this is where he lived? Well, I don't know if, well, okay. He, he did meet Zipporah in this Yeah, because he, he lives out in the desert he, for a long time. Yeah. So, so it could be that he lived here. Maybe he did. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. So because, because he goes out, he, he flees Egypt. He's um, he's on the run because he killed a man mm -hmm. and he's out there in the desert. He sees the, the the bush that won't burn up and God tells him, go back to Egypt. And then the whole all the plagues happen. And then he says, let my people go. They all leave and they actually come back out towards where maybe he was staying. Maybe he had previously stayed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Huh. That's amazing. Right. So so inside these caves you know, sort of look like this. So, you know, they probably had some small rooms in there. They had places to, to put grain or food storage or something like that. But again, you know, this is all in view of the mountain. And nobody's around these areas. Nobody's around this here. Uh, no, this there, there is a, a small town right where this is. There's a small town called Albad, um, okay. A-L-B-A-D, that is just, th this this site is in this town. Okay. And like yeah. I say, it's fenced around and there's a tourist visitor center and everything. But it's, they it's, all say these are the caves of Moses and Jethro. The, exactly. That's what the signs say. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's incredible. Right? Yeah. Now, now these are the, the, the texts from Exodus, right? But there are a few more texts that we need to look at in order to continue to support this mountain as having the claim of being Mount Sinai, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of them is in First Kings, we see 
when the prophet Elijah was fleeing from Jezebel, right? The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, he ate, he drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. So first Kings, the account of Elijah tells us that there's a cave on the mountain of God. If you look at this picture, right on the top here, it, it's probably a little bit difficult to see, but there are two rocks standing. If we zoom into that picture, that picture looks like this. There are two, two rocks standing with a small tree in the middle. Mm. Just as you follow that down, you can see this cave. And this is what the inside of that cave looks like, standing on the inside, looking out. And what do you look out at? Up in the corner here is the Golan Calf Altar. And just behind this rock, all the way down, is that uh, altar that Moses built that was low. Oh, wow. Right? Just yeah. at that cave. That's so, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see the cave is plenty large enough for, for yeah. someone to sleep and spend some time in there. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Boy, that must have been so quite a trip for you to be. Uh, that's a lot of hiking. <laughs> It, it, it is a lot of hiking. And then especially if you're trying to be invisible, <laughs> yeah, yeah and, you, do, you have to take some long routes. Yes. And you're also, you're also, um, you know, you're not sure of where everything is. And so you're kind of exploring while you're hiking. Uh, how long were you that first time? How long were you out here? Did you see all of these sites that first time? Or did no, it take so that first time we didn't see all of the, all of the, so this cave, I never noticed. I didn't even know that this cave was there. Mm. And how I learned about this cave was I went a second time with some friends and he took this picture and he sent me all his pictures and I'm looking at it and I'm like, is that a cave that I see in that photo? Yeah. And then I told to another friend and he went back there and then he went up to the cave and this is what they found. I was like, wow. <laughs> so it's just from amazing. a picture, we noticed the cave. And yeah. Yeah. And you guys were able to find it. That's incredible. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, as I say, just right down here, it's where the Golden Calf Altar is. And just to the bottom down here. Now, this is a steep climb up. I tell you what, to get from where that altar is up to here, it's probably, it will take you about 30 minutes, but it is super steep, <laughs> right? You're, you're, you're basically stepping up, you know, a foot, a foot and a half every time you make a step because of the rocks. Yeah. Yeah, that looks pretty imposing right there. That, that yeah. yeah, I mean, you, that, you can uh, see what this here looks like, right? It's yeah. Like this. Yeah. Yeah. Elijah was determined. He was like, get me <laughs> out of here, man. <laughs> oh, Poor I'll guy. tell you what. <laughs> right. So then finally, yeah. well, not finally, but one of the other things was, you know, we just spoke about Zephorah and where Moses met her at a well. And I mean, this is basically my family on one of those trips where we where. Saudi Arabia has this nicely labeled well of Moses in the city of Al-Makna, yeah, um, where you can just drive and basically see that, you know, there is in the desert, you can see this is like a, a little oasis, and there's just water just flowing out, you know, down a stream, right? Uh -huh. so, so, and again, this is about 20 miles from where, um, or maybe less from where those caves are, where Moses's dwellings or Jethro's dwellings are. Okay. Yeah. So right, right, very close to the seaside as well. That's what's so incredible about the Bible, you know, is that just all the time they're finding all the places mentioned in the Bible, you know? Yeah. And the more people look around, the more you go, well, here's where it was. This is where it happened. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just stunning. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's look at some of these things from, uh, let's look at the crossing now, right? So before they, 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 they got to do all these things, they did have to cross the Red Sea. So this here is the Gulf of Aqaba. This is the Saudi Arabia coast. You have Jordan over here. You have Israel up here. And then you have the Egyptian coast of the Sinai Peninsula, right? Mm -hmm. So what the, mm -hmm. one of the main locations that is currently called Mount Sinai is somewhere up in this region here. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in the Gulf of Aqaba, what you notice is there are maybe two possible sites. So the one that you mentioned earlier is actually this one here, where there's possibly you can see the water look shallower even on the maps. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So th the scripture says here 
that tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahiroth, right? Pihahiroth essentially means entrance or mouth of a canal, okay? So yeah, maybe that is correct. This is near the mouth of a canal, right? And they're to encamp in the sea or encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. But also there is a mention here of Migdal, which in Hebrew means, right, you see here, encamp near Piharat between Migdal and the sea. Migdal essentially means like an elevated region. So you can see here that these are hills elevated. It's between camping on the seaside between the elevated region, Migdal, Mm. and that that area yeah now this is possibly one so it means that they would have crossed here through this what could appear to be a land bridge yeah but then there's also this other area that's just a little bit north okay and this is what that looks like on 3d satellite where Mm. you can see it's just with one path coming in and then this open expanse of land of desert sand that looks almost like a delta and then that crosses over towards Saudi again here. Yeah. And, and they would be trapped again, there also. And here you would be even more better trapped. This is a better trap than the one down here. Yeah. 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 Right. Because here you can probably still try to escape going north, but here there's no way. It's mm. this is it. It's either across the water or back. And, you know, if the Egyptians are coming down here, there's no way to get out. Mm. Yeah. So, so these are two possible sites that I think could be the crossing. Now, what is the location of that eye of Moses that I showed you? That's right here. Mm. Right. So, you know, is it that they crossed this way and they went up here and went this way, or maybe the, maybe the landscape was a little bit different and they were able to cross from here directly across here, whatever it may be, you know, the, the general thinking is that they cross somewhere from here yeah. to somewhere around here. Right. And and now to kind of put that into perspective in terms of where those things are. So looking at the map now, let's just focus a little bit on this box, this green box to Mm -hmm. kind of get an idea of where the things are. So first of all, this is where the eye of Moses is located. Okay, you have that gorge that I showed you that's kind of wiggling its way into the land. Oasis at Elim, so Mara and Elim, somewhere in this area. Right. Then. So this is basically the desert of Shur. Then they went into Rephidim, which is up here. So you can see, you can move from here through these gorges all the way to up where the split rock at Rephidim is, mm-hmm. right? For their water. Where, where they got the water, as well as yep. where they had the battle with the Amalekites. And now we know that Jethro was able to, to basically meet Moses within a few days to have that consultation with him. Jethro's caves are located right here. Yeah? Yeah. And we know Jethro went to meet Moses close to the mountain. Where is that mountain? Right here. Mm. So Moses would have come down from here someplace. Jethro would have gone here. They probably met somewhere in the middle, right? They had that consultation. Yeah. And Jethro returned, Moses returned. But then eventually when they left, Rephidim, they came the same day. The scripture says the same day they came in the presence of the of the uh of the mountain of Mount Sinai. So it wasn't a long walk at all. And here is where the altar of Moses, the one that I showed you that looks like an apex, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And then the golden calf altar is right next to it within eyeshot. Okay. And then those graveyards that I show you are a little bit further up. Right, maybe maybe a little bit down, maybe towards this area here. But that's mm. where those graveyards are. And when you think about this distance, this arrow here represents t- twenty-eight miles. So you're talking twenty-eight miles this way, maybe another twenty miles this way. So you're looking at a triangle that's no more than twenty-eight by twenty by maybe thirty. All doable for people to be able to walk and, and All traverse doable the area. For people to be able to walk. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's so amazing that what you've done here. How you put that? How, yeah, that's amazing how you put that all like that. I mean, that's that just makes it that much more real. I mean, that's just un, uh because when I when I watch the you know the search for the real Mount Sinai, they don't do anything like this. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean they have some general uh demonstration of where things are, but I mean you've really laid it out like exactly where things are it's just yeah that's really cool um 
Yeah, search for the real Mount Sinai number two. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) no no thank you it it was an awesome time i mean i visited this place about four or five times and each time it was always you know adventure and looking for something different and the the point is that none of these things are you know apart from jethro's caves there are no labels anywhere you just go and it's out there you just go and you visit and you you know, so, going out there with a group of men one time, we were just reading the Bible and looking around and reading and looking around. Look, Boy, you know, that, that's that like uh, that's like Indiana Jones right there. <laughs> <laughs> looking for the lost so, treasure, right? So, so uh, do you think, uh, so can people call you up to like give them tours out there? Like you, you would take them out there? I mean, I would love to take them, of course, <laughs> of course. I mean, there, there are groups that are doing tours there now. Um, you know, you can do a search online. I have friends there that are, you know, doing tours, you know, just, hey, can you take us to Mount Sinai? Sure. You know, they just say, hey, I have a weekend free and they just go to do it for fun kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I will jump at the next opportunity that I have to go back and explore this place a bit more. You know, okay. You, for those of you listening, you heard it. Um, give him a call. You pay for his airfare and all his food and everything. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Awesome. So, so um, one other question I wanted to ask you too was, how did this impact you spiritually as far as like, <clears throat> you know, did you grow up in a Christian family um, and, and did you already believe in the Bible? Um, how did this impact you as you, you know, got to see this stuff for the first time and everything? Um, you know, th- that's a good question. So I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I actually grew up in a Hindu home. Hmm. And, you know, coming to Christ later on in my life when I was in my early 20s, you know, but reading the stories was one thing. And I mean, even even in my home, because Trinidad is such a multicultural society, you were exposed to to everything. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I went to Catholic schools all my life and, you know, reading the stories, they almost seemed unbelievable. You know, part, parting of the Red Sea, like what? Yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. Come on. Especially the way it's depicted, right? In the movies or the drawings or whatever. Um. But then actually going out to this place, I I haven't been to Israel yet. So, you know, I know that Israel, you have all these sites that are labeled and this is where this happened and this is where this happened and so on. But this one was different just because you were looking for evidence that was not labeled. You were actually discovering yourself or just using bits and pieces of information that you found online and translating and, you know, that kind of stuff. And actually being able to see that, hey, this really did happen. This is what the Bible talks about. This is the truth of it here. This is the yeah. evidence of what the Bible speaks about. And that impacted us a little bit, well, a bit more just four months after, because, you know, like you mentioned, the Yara Star Foundation, when we started, four months after this, this specific trip, that very first trip, that daughter of ours, our younger daughter, she passed away exactly four months and it really gave us the hope that you know our trust is in the lord jesus Mm -hmm. and he was here he walked this land and he he all of this happened in this area so our hope is actually in the right place and that is what has you know allowed us to walk you know continue to walk knowing that hey you know this is god has a plan for us and we just need to 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 be still, to just sit and just look at him, you know, fight for us, basically. I, my, my last slide of this presentation is actually just that. The Lord will fight for you. You just only need to be still, hmm. right? And I think that is where all of this kind of really helped to cement uh, within us that, hey, this is all true, that w- what's written in the Bible is it's all true and we should not take it for as just illustrations, that's a blessing for anybody to hear, um, you know, in their walk with the Lord. And I think this kind of stuff really does solidify it for people, you know, is that yeah. it just goes, Hey, my hope is in something true and the hope of heaven is there. And I'm going to get to see my loved ones who have gone before me, um, uh, to spend eternity with Christ. So, uh, praise God. That's awesome. And thanks. Thanks for doing this. And, um, tell, tell, you know, before we get off the air, tell our listeners a little bit about the foundation, um and uh, so that they could support that if if they uh, feel led by the spirit yeah sure so the yara star foundation like i just mentioned was born out of um just uh wanting to be able to help children starting off with children with special needs right so our younger daughter that passed she her name was yara 
and um, she did have Down syndrome. And we had a lot of struggles. You know, when, when you have a child with a disability, it's, you know, parents tend to feel hopeless and, and mm-hmm. you know, not knowing how to do what to do and what will be this child's outlook on life, et cetera. But we were privileged enough to be able to, to do special programs with our daughter. And we felt that even now we don't have to do that at this time. Other people need to be made aware and other people need to receive the help. And that's mm. where the Yarastar Foundation comes in. Um, we, we do offer scholarships to parents with children with special needs to attend special programs that are meant to improve the child's intellectual and physical development, as well as offer scholarships to, to just children living in impoverished situations that are you know, trying to, um, to make themselves or put themselves in a better position. Yeah. And yeah, that's what it is. Well, um, what, where, where can they go if they'd like to be involved with that? What's the website? Ah, yeah. So it's just Yara Star Foundation. So that's Y-A-R-A-S-T-A-R foundation.org. And on there, there's a donate button. And yes, we, are wel- we will welcome any donation. Nothing is too, too small. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, my daughter, I have a daughter with cystic fibrosis, so I know, mm. I know that, uh, the difficulties there. So, yeah. um, well, that's wonderful what you're doing and, uh, Rajiv, thank you so much again for, for being with us. That's that, this was a huge blessing. So thank you so much, man. No, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So for those of you listening, um, we will be back again next week. Mark Armitage, if you're interesting, we're doing all kinds of digging stuff here. So we got archaeology and now we're looking into paleontology and um, more evidence of the truth of the Bible. It's really, really incredible stuff. Um, He was actually fired from his university as a microscopy expert because when he found the uh, soft tissue in the Triceratops horn, he wrote it up in a peer-reviewed journal that there's no way it could be millions of years old. And um, they fired him for advocating a creationist viewpoint. But um, it's one of the rare situations where he was actually, um, it, it went to court and um, he won the court case. And he has now uh, gone on to find more soft tissue and is expanding this and uh, does research with kids and all kinds of amazing things. So I hope you can join us again next week. Um, But uh, thanks for being here. And I hope you have a wonderful evening. God bless you. And uh, we'll see you next time.